You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I have a sort of sore throat, and Joe has very kindly said that he'll give me long answers to my questions, <laughs> but he ain't going to get away that easily, I can, I can warn you. Um, and it's lovely that we have a, a, a full house today. Joe Connor, as you know, is a novelist, screenwriter, playwright, broadcaster, um, won loads of awards, including the American Library Association Award and the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Achievement in Literature, and all sorts of complicated ones, Joe, that I didn't actually list. His work has been translated into 40 languages. In 2014, he was appointed Frank McCourt Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Limerick. He's the author of nine novels, including Star of the Sea, Ghost Light, which was Dublin City's Dublin City Dublin One City One book novel in 2011, and I'm sure I've got the title of that wrong. Dublin One City One book. Dublin One City One book novel 2011, and his latest novel, of course, is Shadow Play, which uh, which which came out this year. Joe, I'm just going to write you. I mean, to say obviously the writer of Dracula, Bram Stoker, is one of the main. Um, characters in in this book. Why Bram Stoker? Um, Bram Stoker has been with me my whole life. Um, He's the first Irish author who I ever heard of, I think, or thought of as a Dubliner. Um, And the reason is that when I was a kid, I used to go and stay with my uh, maternal grandmother from time to time. She lived on Keeper Road in Crumlin, and my father's parents lived on the same road, so it was a lovely thing. When you're eight, it's very nice to see all four of your grandparents on the same day. But my um, maternal grandmother, whose name was Kathleen Roach, uh, was a great lover of ghost stories, and um, she would tell the story of um, the brown lady of Raynham Hall in Norfolk, the first ghost ever to be photographed, and the appearance of the devil uh, at the Hellfire Club up in oh, the yeah. Dublin Mountains. And she loved all of those stories. But the best story that she used to tell, is perhaps a bit of a tall tale, um, was about a, a forebear of hers, an uncle, I think, by marriage, who had been a lamplighter in Victorian Dublin. And this man, his, his round, his patch, was the north inner city And she used to say that one night, you know, in the fog, the fog was very thick in Dublin at that time. Um, He had been on his rounds. He was on Church Street, which is just over the bridge there, where St. Mickens or St. Michael's Church is, with the mummies in the crypt. And he um, was a very poor area at the time. And he noticed one night a prosperous-looking young man in a suit standing outside the church, looking up at the at the steeple and he assumed he was lost so he went over and said sir are you, are you lost and he said no he wasn't lost he was interested in the church and in the mummies um, and they got chatting and he said after a while that his name was Abraham Stoker 
and he had worked he worked for the government at, in Dublin Castle, and he occasionally told uh, wrote uh, ghost stories. So so she would tell this story sometimes, and it was occasionally a bit embellished. Hmm. As all the best stories are. One time she said, um, as the years went by, he he would see the lamplighter would see Stoker again from time to time. And then for a few years he didn't see him at all and he assumed that he had moved away or he'd gone to London or whatever. And then one night in April 1912 he was on his rounds and he was outside St. Micken's Church again and it was another very foggy night. And standing in a doorway across the street from the church was Mr. Stoker and they waved and exchanged nods and then the lamplighter went home and he opened the newspaper and he saw that Bram Stoker had died the day before in London. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so the story, she was a good storyteller, you know. So, um, yeah. so that's, it, that's it was just an intriguing notion that um, that somebody belonging to me, as, as as we say, might have met Bram Stoker. So he always interested me. Um, growing up, you know, I, I read Dracula when I was a kid. Um, I was interested in, in in Stoker's life. One of the first gigs I had when I went to work in London. Um, was that I wrote the the literature section of the Rough Guide, you know those those yeah. books, and and um, I remember doing a lot of research about Stoker at that time, and um, he was a fascinating man, uh, for somebody who was so successful with this one book, Dracula. I, I think he's curiously forgotten about in Ireland, and there isn't a street named after him, there isn't a bridge named after him. The very controversial now. Uh, poster of the 12 great Irish writers, which, which has rightfully been torn up a bit because they're all men. And yes. Stoker doesn't even make it to be one of the 12, um, despite being commercially the most yeah. successful Irish author of all time, um, perhaps. So the more I looked into his life, the more he, he came to intrigue me. He went as a young man off to London, where he worked for most of the rest of his life as a theatre manager. He managed the uh, Lyceum Theatre on the Strand, mm. which is uh, still there. And he worked for this volcanic, mesmeric figure, um, Henry Irving, who was thought of as the greatest Shakespearean actor of his day, and perhaps of all time. And then the third member of this um, fascinating trio was Ellen Terry, who was a really remarkable woman, um, the most famous actor actress of her time, the highest paid woman in England um, at one point. Everybody who ever met her um, appears to have fallen in love with her. Um, she would say that all she ever did on the stage was play herself, whether she was Ophelia or Juliet or whoever she was, she would just turn up and say the lines as herself and people would queue down the street um, to see Ellen Terry. So, yeah. so there was a period of seven or eight years when these three remarkable people were all working in the one place, and that's, that's the, the kind of starting point of shadow play. Well, maybe you wouldn't mind yeah. reading the opening pages, which is a letter uh, to Ellen Terry from Brown. Yeah, this is um, the, the very start of the book, and, uh, but, but the book doesn't move entirely chronologically. This is set when Brown is an old... Uh, man, and he's um, he's responding to a letter from his uh, from his his old friend and perhaps his old flame, um, Ellen Terry. So here goes: Victoria Cottage Hospital near Deal, Kent, 
20th of February, 1908. My dearest Ellen, please excuse this too long delayed response. As you'll gather from the above address, I'm afraid I've not been too well. Money worries and the strain of overwork weakened me over this wretched winter until I broke down like an old cab horse on the side of the road. What's good is that they say little permanent damage is done. My poor espoused saint has moved down here from London too, to a little boarding house on the seafront and comes in on the bus to read to me daily so we can continue irritating one another contentedly as only married people can. We enjoy quarrelling about little things like sandwiches and democracy. <laughs> I'm still able to typewrite, as you see. Last night, I had a dream of you-know-who. He was in Act 3 of Hamlet. And somehow, you came to me too, like a rumour of trees to a tired bird. And so here I am, late but in earnest. How wonderful to know you are putting together your memoir and how frightening that prospect will be for untold husbands. You ask if I have anything left in the way of Lyceum programmes, costume sketches, drawings or a Kodak of Henry, lists of first-night invitees, menus, so on. I'm afraid I haven't anything at all in that line of country. Almost everything I had I stuffed into my reminiscences and then turfed the lot five suitcases full into the British Library once the book was published, apart from a couple of little personal things of no interest or use to anyone. You're correct to recall that at one time I had a file of letters from poor Wilde, but I thought it wise to burn them when his troubles came. What I do have is the enclosed, a clutch of diary pages and private notes I kept on and off down the years and had begun working up into a novel somewhat out of my usual style or perhaps a play, I don't know. The hope was to finish the deuced thing at some point before my dotage. But I can't see that happening now that I seem to have lost the old vigour. In any case, since I have no savings and the London house is heavily mortgaged, I must marshal what forces I possess and find employment that will pay, which my scribblings have never done. The plan is to ship ourselves to Germany, perhaps Hamburg or Lübeck. The cost of living is lower there, and Florence speaks the language. God knows we're a little old to emigrate at our time of life, but there it is. As to the scribbles, some parts are finished out, others still in journal form. I had intended changing the names, but hadn't got around to it. Your own name, being part of you, seemed too beautiful to change. Since you appear in proceedings yourself, you'll find looking through the ruins a curiosity at any rate, and it might raise a smile or two at the old days of fire and glory, the madness of that time. If any plank of the shipwreck is of use, which I doubt, for your memoir, salvage rights are yours. Well, perhaps check with me first. Much of it is in Pittman shorthand, which I think you know. If you don't, a local girl in the village will, or there is Miss Miniter's secretarial service near Covent Garden. I can see the street clear as daylight, but can't think of its name. You may remember her. She's in the directory. Some of it is in a code even its maker has forgotten. I wonder what I can have been trying to hide and from whom. Well then, old thing, my treasured friend. It is a holy thought 
to imagine my words moving through your heart's heart, because then something of me will be joined with something of you, and we will stand in the same rain for a time, under the one umbrella. All fond love to you and your family, my dearest golden star, and happy birthday next week, I think, ever your Bram. So once again, Joe, it's, it's a, a book about the life of the stage and the life behind the stage, a bit like Ghost Life had a lot of that as well. Why does the stage hold such fascination for you? Well, to look at where we are this evening. I mean, yeah. you and I were just standing backstage remarking on the fact that, that this building we're in tonight has been here since 1662. Imagine the stories, imagine the ghosts that a place like this would have. In fact, in Shadow Play, the first time that Bram Stoker ever sees Henry Irving on the stage is when Irving is performing Hamlet in Dublin. And this was the very theatre that I had in mind um, because of its fascinating history. This building went from being a theatre um, to a church back and forth um, a few times over the years. And I like the notion that the same building might be used for different sorts of sacred um, purposes. So the theatre is very... Uh, atmospheric. I mean, in Victorian London, which is where most of this book is set, it, it, it's actually one of the few places where young men and women could meet and, and work together. Uh, and I, I think often with the theatre, the really interesting stories are, are what happens backstage and, uh, and in the shadows, hence the title. And I think there was something in Stoker and something in Henry Irving and in Ellen Terry that was attracted to that, uh, to, to those, that, that kind of chiaroscuro, those, uh, those shadows. And, and of course, when you look at what Stoker would then write himself, um, Dracula is full of um, performance and, and stage and drama, melodrama indeed. Um, so, so any theatre that I've ever been in, even from, from a very old one to, to a very modern one, the backstage is always an interesting place. And it's a sort of a demi-monde yes, in is. a way. And I suppose, you know, at that time when public virtue, so to speak, was very strict and very Victorian, it really allowed for a mixing of genders, classes, all, all sorts of things could happen. Well, I think it's gen genders, classes, orientations, yeah. predilections... Yeah. peccadillos, you know. I mean, it, it's really interesting. I mean, since, since you mentioned Ghostlight, which is set at a slightly later time, it's 1910, and, and it, it focuses on John Singh, great Irish playwright whose work I love. Um, but no member of Singh's family ever saw one of his plays performed because of the Victorian interdiction and uh, unease about the theatre um, Singh's family were very strict biblical Protestants and they felt that the theatre was wrong um, yes. and that, that, that women who worked in the theatre um, were harlots and that men who worked in the theatre were a bit suspect. And, um, and, the, wore, the, ma and wore makeup. And, and, and wore makeup and all of that. Yeah. And um, there are specific yeah, biblical injunctions which would be quoted to, to do with not worshipping idols. Yeah. Um, as, as reasons why you shouldn't go to the theatre. Um, so the theatre was kind of suspect in terms of uh, class and politics and sexuality. So, yeah. so, of course, any storyteller 
would, would be drawn towards it. Uh, but the Archbishop to... of Dublin, the famous John Charles McQuaid, yeah. Uh, forbade his priests to actually sit in a theatre. I think that went on at the end of the 60s or the early 70s. They used to sit in the wings, those right. of them who dared to go to the theatre. Yeah. It was extraordinary stuff. But that is extraordinary. And then he would put on his frock. And yes, exactly, exactly. Well, you've got, you've got a, a lovely bit in here where Ellen Terry's voice comes into the book for the first time. and She's describing yeah. the Lyceum. Yes. So now you've got to be Ellen Terry. Yes, yes, so you have to imagine that I'm a distinguished Shakespearean actress. Um, so, yeah, so, so this is a bit where Ellen Terry, at a later point in her life, is remembering back to uh, meeting Henry Irving for the first time, Harry, as, as she refers to him, and meeting Bram, and, um, and what Harry was like and what the Lyceum was like. Um, so this is the voice of Ellen Terry. I might stand up to read, actually, yeah. if, that's, if that's all right. <clears throat> right, the voice of Ellen Terry. Do you know, I can never remember exactly when I met Harry. He was just always there, like the sky. We did Romeo and Juliet, I seem to recall, in Sirencester or somewhere, when I was 19 or 20. He was kindly, a personable cove, shatteringly handsome, and he had a sort of softness towards the older actors, which I always found touching. He spoke to them with great respect and good fellowship, even though some were long past their best nights, which, in honesty, might not have been all that starlit to begin with. Journeymen actors, may God bless every one of them. But he would take them out walking the morning after a show, sit with them a while in the park, make a little fuss of them, listen to their stories of the profession. He'd be careful to address them as sir or ma'am. Those small things count with me. I always think it important to say about Harry that he'd once been very poor. A young actor starting out on the road, at that time you'd no hunger. Harry knew what it was to be exhausted and cold, maybe to walk 60 miles between towns for a job, not to have had a proper bed or a place to wash. There was a winter when he was too poor to afford underwear and was sleeping in fields and doorways. So the old actors were his heroes. He'd walked their roads. We'd bump into each other now and again afterwards in some awful digs in the provinces. He was amusing and charming. He had the good flirt's trick of making you feel you were the only person in the room, which, even when you know the trick, is fun to see done well. His party piece was a satirical impersonation of himself playing Lady Macbeth. Look at me, I don't take myself tremendously seriously. That type of man, which is always a sign that they do. <laughs> Another tactic, the poor booby, was that he'd flatter your hair. Oh, your beautiful russet ring ringlets, angel, is russet the correct word? You see, he knew that every other chap in the room, if he flattered you at all, would burble on about your eyes, because that's what chaps did. So it was always your hair with Harry. That way, you were supposed to notice he was different from the rest, tremendously full of feeling and sensitivity and refinement. I saw him do it 500 times, Mr. Russet. It could be early in the morning, it might be after a first night party. You could be looking like the portrait in Dorian Gray's attic. It was still, <laughs> darling, your beautiful hair. 
Oh, of course he was in love with one, just ardently, immensely, and going to shoot himself if he couldn't have you, and in love with someone else three minutes later. By the time you'd boil an egg, he'd have pledged undying devotion elsewhere and be about to leap off London Bridge if rejected. One admired his energy. Keep whacking the golf balls, one of them's bound to go in. That sort of chap, a bit scattergun in his approach to wooing. It was simply the way with Harry, like waiting for sunrise. But once you made clear that you wouldn't be going to bed with him, he'd look oddly relieved and calm down. <laughs> and the matter once raised would not be revisited, I will say that for him. He didn't make a nuisance of himself. Funny old skellum. Never dull. There are men whom it is important not to take the slightest notice of when they're talking, if it's after 10 o'clock at night and they've had a glass of beer. Harry was one such mammal. They really and truly don't mean to be idiots. But it's like a Roman Catholic person not wanting to feel guilt. You might as well ask water to run uphill, except that might conceivably be contrived with a pump. Once he asked my sister to run away with him, to Rotterdam, I think it was. She said no, and he asked my brother. That was <laughs> the most important thing to understand about Harry. Essentially, what he wanted, darling, who wouldn't, was someone to run away with him to Rotterdam. It's what all of us want, isn't it? Of course, nobody gets it. Probably not even those misfortunates who are in Rotterdam already. One wonders where they want to run away to. Crouch end. But he'd grown up and taken on a bit of sensibleness. Is that a word? By the time he opened the Lyceum. What age? Oh, in his middle thirties, I should guess, darling. No one counts these things too carefully in our profession. Thirty-six, perhaps. Harry was 36 for 20 years. And by the time he was 36, he had acquired all the maturity of an only sometimes irksome schoolboy who needs cuffing about the head just once a term. An early developer, our Harry, for a man. No, I wasn't there when Bram came. Although, queerly, I often think I was. Somehow, Bram was always there, like that rainy light coming in the windows. He was a darling man, rather obsessive, exquisitely serious. He could be absent-minded, too, the sort of fellow who goes out in unmatched shoes. One often used to think he would have made a wonderful monk. He didn't at all seem the sort one would employ as a manager. Head in the clouds sort of chap. Not a clue about the things that really matter in a theatre, like money and tickets and making sure the gutters have been cleared and someone's sweeping the foyer and the actors aren't poisoning each other. A little of that is all right, it keeps up morale, but too much of it and the audience starts noticing. Harry was ruddy useless, felt management to be beneath him, and so Bram wouldn't have had, what's the word, say, a mentor of any sort. A bit imperious was Harry. He knew he was Harry. King Henry IX, I used to call him as a tease. But an ingenue can grow into a role after all. One supposes Bram must have done. God knows how. That's She's my most convincing Shakespearean actress. <laughs> <laughs> but the lovely thing about her is that she brings into the book this terrific playfulness and yet that sharp eye for you know you could imagine really enjoying a lunch an extended lunch with oh, that yeah, woman yeah well it was I, I actually remember this the, the morning I was working on the book when um, 
when Ellen arrived, I, I had had a couple of goes at this in a couple of different modes. I, I wrote a, uh, a screenplay based on the, the Bram and Henry story. And then that became a radio play. And they were, you know, that was, that was grand. The radio play was produced. But I just al al always felt that there's something missing, that like it's quite an efficient uh, bromance. Mm. But that's all it is. And then one morning I was just kind of messing around and I tried to put Ellen's voice in and it was just a crackle of electricity went through the page and I just thought right this is this is exactly what the book needs and from then on I, I would really look forward to going down to the office to work and, and thinking sometimes with a bit of trepidation oh Jesus what what's Ellen Terry going to make me do today you know <laughs> so, so she, she was a great presence and I suppose she she recasts the two lads in a different light. She, she does, and there's a lovely description in the book of where Bram and Ellen Terry and the great Sir Henry Irving end up sleeping uh, all night in his theatre sitting room. You know? yeah. And there's against that one, wonderful demi-moaned sort of sense of them all being in there together. And Yeah, I, I mean, that's, I, that's heightened or invented a bit, you know, the, the novel mm. is a work of fiction. But yes, there's, a, there's a, a sequence lasting a few months when the Jack the Ripper murders are happening in London mm. and people are afraid to go out at night. And obviously mm. this book's about theatre people and they work at night and they're often going home at midnight or there's a, a notes meeting after the show, they might be going home at two o'clock in the morning. So Irving actually lives in the theatre at this point. Um, yeah. And, and, and Bram and Ellen move in, and there are three, three sofas mm. um, around, around, arranged around the fire in a kind of U-shape, uh, and each of them has a sofa. And I, I suppose you want the reader to wonder, one night will I come in here and one of those sofas will be empty, and yeah. somebody will be sharing a sofa with somebody else. Yes. Um, so so it, it, yeah. ha it has that... Um, and we won't tell whether no, that happens won't. in the book. Yeah. Um, but the, the lovely thing about the tone that she brings into it is that um, there's none of the, um, the actor about it. I mean, she's yeah. not at all um, uh, terribly pompous about the work that she does no, or the role that she plays. Yeah. But all the same, you have a lovely piece in here where she talks about where she picks up her ideas. Yeah. For acting. And it's just one of the best practical bits of advice I would have thought for any actor. And Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the bit. No, it's and she was actually like that in real life and it's good um to have somebody that's a bit down to earth yeah. at the theatre in the book because Irving was the total opposite. I mean well, he, he, was. he was as 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 thespy as you can get. Yeah. Um so so I suppose that at the same time as she admires his craft. And, 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 I mean, Irving was an amazing actor. People talk about how the audience would go into hysterics um, and, and, and kind of scream and holler if he was playing a villain. Um, and he, he appeared to have this kind of mesmeric um, control over people. Some critics refer to him appearing to shapeshift on the stage. But, but as she says, he, you know, he knows he's Harry. He knows he's very good. Um, so so he, he, his, his whole style is rather pompous and inflated. Whereas Ellen Terry in real life grew up in a theatrical family. She was in pantomimes as a kid. She just regarded it as hilarious that mm. people wanted to pay money to see her being Ophelia. And it made her a very interesting character. I'll, I'll come to this in a minute. Mm. Because um, she, she had money and power. 
and it, it mattered what she thought. And, you know, if she said so, the theatre would have a hit. Uh, and, and if she decided not to do something, it wouldn't. So it makes her a very interesting character to write about because a, a late 19th century woman really mattering, you know, and really being the boss um, is, is, is quite unusual. So that was a fun thing to write about. Anyway, this is, this is the sequence. This is the one I think you mean, Olivia, where um, Ellen, Ellen has joined the theatre and she's... Uh, Bram is in her office and, and they, they kind of stumble into a conversation about how she does her thing. Stand up again for this. In the leading lady's office that Miss Terry has insisted on having installed as part of her contract, she rises from the desk, crosses to the meeting table. Where are we with the list, Bram? You were on page four. Can we hurry? She has asked him to let her observe his work as a manager. She's planning to run her own theatre one day. I have paid the wages, says Stoker, reading from his notebook of tasks. Arranged the auditions, spoken to the bank, ordered the glazier for the new doors to the auditorium, settled the accounts for refurbishing this room. That can't have cost much, she says, looking about. The furniture's off a scrap heap. And there is a reporter from the Times downstairs, Stoker says, a grisly old sort. He would like to speak with you for an hour about the show. Have him fed to the chief's dog, will you? <laughs> the hound utters a grunt from its rug by the fire. The publicity would be useful in selling tickets, Stoker says. Oh, my hat to their tickets, let them come or not. Well, without tickets being sold, there is no theatre at all, as you will see when you run a playhouse yourself. If you insist, I do. I surrender, she says. She returns to the desk, pulls a handkerchief from a drawer and uses it to polish her spectacles. It's always the same tedious questions from the reporters, she says. They make one lose the will to live. What do you think of Shakespeare? What is it like being a woman in the theatre? How do you put together a portrayal? Well, how do you, he says. I look at the people around me, she says. How does anyone? You look. A limp, she says, my housemaid. A squint, my aunt. A nice old girl, you, Bram. A pompous but likeable bore, the chief. Stoker permits himself a laugh. She imitates it back to him with such exactitude that he startles. Watching is meat and drink, she says. People are food. You have surely noticed that the chief has put your own particular way of reading a book into his Macbeth. I hardly think so. You lick your fingertip, Bram, before turning a page. So does his Macbeth. His Iago touches his face when frightened. So do you. There is a gesture you make where you touch the tips of your palms. You do it when you're asking for something. Watch carefully. He'll use it. But that's a coincidence, surely. Nothing is a coincidence. This is. Pop over, she says, and open that drawer in the cabinet for me, would you, Bram? You'll find a bundle of little sketchbooks. Fetch one of them over like a good man. Any at random. The tome's wrinkled pages are of greying old parchment, every inch of space alive with inked drawings of hands, mouths, eyes, free-flowing lines of footprints, bits of musical notation. You drew these, he says. But it's the way I go into a part, darling. I look. That is all. Their mannerisms, habits, things about their accent, how a character walks is as important as anything she says the way she lifts a wine glass, the way she draws a curtain, 
whatever words she puts the weight on when she's saying a sentence. Most of all, her stare. Get that? You get everything. Stoker riffles the pages. A nun's head turns towards the viewer, smiles, bares its teeth. I started doing them as a girl, she says. Tip I got from my father, an old warhorse, took me on for his panto when I was only seven or eight. Always attend to your sketches. They'll stand to you in the end. Your scholar has got his school books, but a player has got those. They're beautiful, Stoker says. I didn't know you could draw. No, no, it's not beauty. It's just looking, dear Bram. It's knowing everything contains the opposite of itself. It's the key to playing Ophelia, Desdemona, Lady M. Put something into every lover that wants to be rejected and something into every villain that wants to be loved. All the evil in the world, it comes from shattered love. Forget that and the audience won't believe you. Well, you know, as you describe it, it was London of the, 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 the deep fogs, the Jack the Ripper murders, um, that sense of danger on the streets, and, and that was the background against which Bram started to write this, <laughs> this story. Um, but there, there, was, there was a lot going on. Number one, there was Bram trying to write this story. And then, number two, there was Henry Irving, Irving, who never let anything sort of go by that he could use, um, conscious also that the Jack the Ripper stories and atmosphere were what was fascinating Bram, and that Bram's story had to, had to, had to, to do with that. Um, and I'm going to ask you to read in a minute a, a little excerpt where he, where he does that. But... The fascinating thing about that story was that, as you say, it was probably commercially the most important piece of literary work ever produced in this country. But while he was alive, he never earned a penny from it. Mm. Well, um, it's, it, I suppose it's one of the great ironies of Bram Stoker's life that all he, what he wanted mm. was to be a successful author or, or playwright. He, he dreamed of writing a novel that would liberate him from having to do other sorts of work and enable him to support his family by, by writing. And, and that, that just never happened. And one of the reasons it didn't happen was because working for Irving was, was just so demanding. Uh, you know, Bram would often be working 18-hour days. And he, he did publish um, seven or eight books, but, but none of them um, were, were successful. Finally, Dracula... I think is 1897, and thank God Bram did one very important thing, which was it wasn't possible to copyright a novel at the time. There was no copyright law for novels. There was only the, the law that would allow you to copyright a play. So, so I have a kind of running marital tiff all the way through the book. Bram's wife is always trying to get him to copyright his work uh, by, by turning it into a play. And he's always saying, but who... Why would I bother? Nobody's ever going to be interested. But in real life and in the book, um, Mrs. Stoker, Florence Balcom, a great Dublin woman, finally won out. And on a particular morning, Monday morning in, I uh, can't remember the month, but in 1897, there was the one performance of Dracula on stage at the Lyceum Theatre, 10.30 in the morning. The script was pages torn out of the book, 
and kind of glued together. Um, the cleaning ladies were busy in the auditorium. The carpenters were building the set behind. There was no costume, there was no scenery. The actor playing Dracula was still hung over from the night before. <laughs> he just kind of cantered through it. But that was enough to establish Dracula as a legally owned copyright entity. So 10 years after Stoker's death, uh, he died in uh, 1912. So 10 years afterwards, a German film company pirated um, Dracula and they made their film Nosferatu, um, thinking that Dracula, like, like all of Stoker's other books, had been forgotten. But unfortunately for them, it hadn't been forgotten by Mrs. Stoker, um, <laughs> who, who, who made it her mission. God bless her. Um, she tormented this company for the rest of her life, dragged them in and out of court, made them pay damages, established very important principles of copyright that are still in use today, so all authors owe Florence Balcom a debt. The one thing that I'm happy she didn't succeed in was um, under the terms of her settlement with the German company, they were to destroy every print of Nosferatu. And, and, and one guy decided he would destroy all of them apart from six. So he kept six copies of Nosferatu, so we still have the first appearance of Dracula on film. And then the movies just fell in love with Dracula and they couldn't get enough of Dracula. So, so somewhere, I hope, in the other world, Bram Stoker yes. might have realised that his, his, <coughs> he, he had a very big hit. So did poor old Florence, his wife, manage to get a penny out of it? Yes, she did. she did. Bram died almost broke and he was being supported by the kind of British association of, of, of authors that, that, mm. that, that do that, that look after authors who've fallen on hard times. And, and I, I think Florence's estate, when she died, was, was kind of £30,000. Good old Florence. Plus. Yeah, so God, yeah. God, God bless her. Yeah. 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 Well, it's ju I'm just going to ask you to read this excerpt, because in a way, it's yeah. the only time in the book that the Dracula idea comes alive. Yeah, which one is it? Um, it is, what let page? me see, it is page... Um, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah. 166. So oh, yeah. The top yeah, no, I know. I know. You know the bit. Yeah, I have. So, Bram, um, in real life and in the book, in Dublin and in London, was, was a great night walker. Um, he's one of those people who got something from walking the deserted streets of, of a city or a town uh, late at night. And he always uh, did this. And it's, it's interesting how that, that figure the sleepwalker or the nightwalker appears in Dracula and many of his other books. But this is a bit where um, it's, it's late at night and it's in London and um, a play has just ended and Bram has sent the actors home. He and Ellen have put Irving to bed, um, but his head is still kind of buzzing and, you know, it's kind of post-performance thing. He's not able to just go home to bed. So this is what happens. Now, it's in the middle of the era of the Ripper murders, so it's unwise to be walking around London at night. Um, so here he is. He's just arrived. He's walked from, from the Lyceum Theatre, which is on the Strand, into the East End of London, it's about three or four miles away. Ahead of me, in a red-lit doorway, I saw the figure of a skeletal young woman awaiting custom. Poor child. How wretched the abjection of one who must ply that trade even on such fearful nights. Now sensing my presence, she moved quickly backwards into the shadows, 
her scarlet lamp was extinguished. I reached into my pocket to remind myself the knife was still there. And that was when I saw him, before me in shadow. There was no mistaking the sight. The black cloaked man moved with weird slowness and yet springiness across the gloomy street, glanced up at the icy moon and made away southerly in the direction of the docks with a curious half-trotting sort of gait. I could see that his right fist held a short, heavy cane, say a cudgel, on his head a large, brimmed black hat like a matador's. As I followed, I fought the urge to vomit, so strong was the terror. My dress shirt and undergarments were heavy with sweat, my tongue slick and sour, my blood fizzing. I was horribly cognizant of the click of my shoes and wished I could somehow silence them. Soon my quarry and I reached the riverside. Tall ships were tied on at the gantries, their bare masts and empty decks, giving them a look of death vessels in a dream. To fight my fear, I decided I should sing in my mind. But my mind was so ablaze that ridiculously I could only think of one song. And then the scream that split the night was blood-curdling, abject. It had come from 120 yards away, a railway culvert beneath the river. I wanted to run, to pretend I had not heard it. Now came the gruntings and cries of a violent struggle, a volley of hard, dull clunks, a girl's voice in gasping terror, and the most awful, guttural, echoing snarl like that of a wolf. Looking about, I saw no one who might come to my aid. Help, came the voice, he's killed me. Help a poor girl. I took out the knife I had brought for my protection, but my palm was so drenched that I could scarcely make a grip on the hilt. There are four of us here, I called. I warn you, come out. Silence now from the culvert, broken only by the slapping of water. Again was I tempted to turn and run hard as I could through the streets to my house, not even to look back, never to speak of what I had heard. But cowardice is the cause of every evil in the world. Stealing myself as best as I could, I crept onward. From behind came a sound that froze me, the breathing of a man. That was all it was, the intake, the expulsion, that such a sound, the evidence of life, could strike shafts of abject terror. It is something I shall never forget. When I turned, he was standing in a pool of silver moonlight, a sacking mask over his head, with eye holes burnt, in his left glove was the cudgel I had seen him with earlier. In his right was a butcher's cleaver. I cried out as loud as I could in the hope that someone passing even at a distance might hear me, perhaps one of the sailors on the moored ships. Sss, he hissed in a weird simulacrum of gentleness. Without otherwise moving, he now opened his horrid mouth wide, bearing saliva dripping teeth and dog-like tongue, and then came a snuffling chuckle I recognised. As he took off and pocketed the hood, I thought my temples would burst. So now you know all, Irving said. <laughs> I was unable to speak. A long moment passed before he crumpled into laughter. I followed you, idiot, he said. When I saw you'd left the theatre unaccompanied on one of your insane bloody strolls, you don't think any self-respecting chief would let you alone to be gobbled by saucy Jack. 
You damned, unspeakable wretch, I said. You are a cur, not a man. And I continued in obscene vain, but all he did was laugh and point his shaking finger. Your face, how bram, how I wish you could see yourself. By now he was helpless with mirth, but after a couple of moments recovered himself sufficiently to gasp, help me, oh help me, I'm a girl in a pickle. As I left him, I could hear his hilarity dying slowly away. Hello, he called out. I say, you're not leaving me here alone, old man. Don't go. I did not stop until I had reached my empty shell of a house. Now dawn, heart racketing, brain boil. (laughs) (coughs) And of course, Dracula, the Count, the beautifully turned out theatrical Mm. figure, was was based on Henry Irving. Well, he may have been. I mean, people at the time even noticed the the kind of the similarity. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not completely sure as a novelist myself, I suppose, that that's how novelists work. I don't think it's as simple as having a prototype or a role model and that you just change the name. Um, I think a process that's a bit more like a sort of osmosis goes on and, and that there may have been something of Irving and something of ghost stories that Bram's mother, who was from Sligo, might have told him. Um, There was certainly something from previous uh, supernatural books and vampire stories. I mean, Bram is very far from the first person to put a novel, uh, to put a vampire into the heart of uh, a novel. But he was the first person to do something really brilliant and clever, which is to make it contemporary. We kind of think of Dracula as set in a funny quasi-medieval Transylvania. Transylvania. But the most frightening bits of of Dracula are are when Dracula comes to London and Dracula's living in a derelict townhouse on Piccadilly and he's able to change his appearance. So he could be sitting beside you on the tram. He could be walking past you in Leicester Square. Again, very similar language to what contemporary reporters use about the Ripper. Um, So so it's very tempting to think that part of him might be Irving. But there's actually no textual evidence for that. Bram never spoke about um, or wrote about Dracula. He, he wrote an unforgivably long um, biography of Irving. After Irving died, he wrote his personal reminiscences of Henry Irving, of which there are more than we need. I mean, it's like yeah. 700 pages, two volumes. Um, it's a snowstorm of facts. Every first night at the Lyceum, he tells you everybody who was there, what was on the menu, what the wines were. Um, but he, he never really talks about the nature of their relationship, and he never mentions Dracula at all. So, so presumably, if, if Irving had... If, if Bram had known that Irving was one of the ingredients for Dracula, he might have said it. But scholars have latched on to this and believed that Irving was, but Bram himself never he said never, anything about it and, and simply yeah. may not have, have known. I, I think it is interesting how that, that, that happens and, yeah. and, and novelists do odd um, things. There's a scene in the book where Ellen is having an argument with somebody and I, I wanted Ellen to win the mm. argument and I, I, I couldn't make the character do it so I started experimenting with various real women who, from our world to see if I, if I could put their spirit or their attitude into Ellen for this 
seen to let her win the argument. So, so I did this with various people, and the person who won in the end was Patty Smith, you know, the great rock star. I thought, oh, yeah. so how would Patty Smith actually win this argument? And, and that's what I gave to Ellen. So, so you see what I mean? You, mm. you borrow bits from all over the place, and then you borrow bits that you don't even know about. Yeah, it's not always a conscious thing yeah. that, you, that you do. Um, we have the opportunity for people to ask questions of Joe, and we even have two roving mics. So um, there are people in red T-shirts, I gather, who are going to wander around with the roving mics. So is there anybody who would like to put a question? I'm a little bit at a disadvantage here because the lights are very bright. Uh, maybe if you'd put your hands up, we can get a mic to you. Somebody's going to have to ask a question the now. First, that gone to all the trouble there, of yes, there's the a brave up. hand. Okay. Can we get a mic up there? Yeah. If you'd keep your hand up. Sorry, did, you, did everybody get that? Somebody didn't, so would you just ask it again, please? Okay, I wondered if it was more difficult to write about real people as opposed to people you totally invent. Um, well, it's all difficult, you know. It's, um, like I, I, I find writing really difficult <laughs> and, and really frustrating. I mean, it's my ninth novel, it's, it's as as, as difficult, if not more so, than writing my first one because your standards go up and you want every book to be the best one that you've ever written. But I, it's, it's, it's difficult in a particular way, which is there is a moral ambiguity involved in writing about real people. And, and, and you need to engage with that a bit. So, like in Star of the Sea, the book of mine, which is set against the background of the Irish famine, um, you, you need to be aware that the famine is something that happened. Uh, and that the, the, the lives of real men and women and children who, who died um, perhaps should not be used to provide the energy that makes readers turn the pages of a novel. You know, you have to be careful that you're not exploiting um, real lives. And then I, I think you have to be very clear, uh, which I, I've tried to be in the afterword of the book, it's the first sentence, um, is that, that this is based on real events uh, but it's a work of fiction. I have taken great liberties with um, facts and characterizations and chronologies, uh, and then you direct the reader immediately to the researched works that you've uh, used yourself. You know, people in, in search of reliable um, information need to be pointed to, to, to where, where they should go. But I, I do think that, like, in the case of John Singh, mm -hmm. in the case of Bram Stoker, I feel you have one notch more of a license to do this if you're writing about a writer, an artist, a storyteller, because they might have done this themselves. I mean, there's yeah. clear evidence that Singh kind of did get the idea for Playboy of the Western world from an actual case that happened on the Aran Islands. Stoker may have drawn from Henry Irving to create Dracula. He certainly, he, intriguingly, he mentions Ellen Terry by name in Dracula, one of the very few people, one of the very few real-life people he mentions, and his only, the only friend, the only person he actually knew himself who he mentions, um, is Ellen Terry, a really intriguing thing to do. So, so the fact that these people themselves referred to the real world and real people, I think gives you a little bit of a license to do that, but, but you need to, to be very clear about 
what you're doing and to be straight and honest with the, with the reader about it and to say it's, it's a fantasy. I note that two other great figures of the Irish theatre who were, I mean, the, the Irish at that stage in London, of course, um, had an enormous amount of influence. You think about Wilde yeah. and you think about Shaw. And we, we hear Wilde through the window one morning, I think, trying to come in to see, to see <clears throat> Bram or congratulate him. And we have Shaw who doesn't turn up in time for lunch yeah. with Ellen Terry. Yeah, um, cheek. The cheek of yeah. him. Yeah, that's how she feels as well. Um, uh, and, and, and I thought that was very nice. They were sort of voices off stage. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing about Bram's life, his real life, that Wilde is always there in, in the background. Um, they knew each other as students at Trinity. Stoker proposed Wilde for membership of various student societies. Um, the very great Dubliner Florence Balcom, who uh, Bram married, um, before that had been engaged to Wilde uh, at one point. And, and rather deliciously for Dracula fans, when they broke up, Wilde's parting gift at the end of the relationship was a crucifix. Um, so, so, so Wilde is always uh, there, yeah. a kind of a ghost in the backstage of Bram's life yeah, of uh, and an intriguing relationship in itself. Now, is there anybody else who wants... I can see a hand up here. Yeah, yeah. there's a man there. This is great. It's like being on question time. It's terrific. Yeah. Just yeah, no, I, got, I saw you. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else here, is there? Um, Joe, just um, your, your writing career, there's been a huge change from, from your early books to yeah. what you work on now, um, probably from the Star of the Sea onwards. Was, did you make a conscious decision to, to become a historical novelist or, or have you just found yourself moving in that direction? Um, I, I, I don't think of myself as a historical novelist necessarily. You know, the novelists who I love, like Peter Carey and Toni Morrison and the late Brian Moore, set some of their novels in the past and some in the contemporary um, world. So, so I don't think that was the change. There was a big, I guess, personal change in my life and in my attitude to my writing around the time that our first uh, son was born, um, who, who's a 18 now. And um, everybody who's a parent will know that your view of everything changes when you become a parent and your stake in the world deepens. You have a reason to care about things in a way that you didn't before. And I suppose with my early books, um, I mean, I loved writing. It was all I ever wanted to do from when I was a young teenager. And I got, I got a, bit, um, a bit dizzy and a bit drunken with just kind of firing the books out. And if people didn't like the book, it was fine. It didn't bother me at all. I'd just write another one. And I think I always put 100% into them, but I, I didn't care about them in the same way as I found myself caring about the novel I was writing when James was born, and that was Star of the Sea. And I mean, I did feel um, I would like this to be a book um, that that boy would read one day and that it would make a difference to him and that his kids might be able to read uh, and so I put 102% of effort in. Uh, and um, it's, a, it's an odd thing. I mean, among the many wonderful, joyous feelings that you have when you become a parent, it's also an intimation of your own mortality. I mean, this, this is the circle of life. You're not always going to be here. So, so I began to think, uh, there's a finite number of novels. You know, you might write another 10 novels if you're lucky. So, so you know, maybe start trying to make them count. 
And, and I, I, I deliberately, consciously, with Star of the Sea, um, tried to write a book that would always be around. I didn't want it to go out of print, and I, I'm, I wrote it for, for James, and I'm happy that it never, it, it never has gone out of print. And, and I, has, I don't he, think has he read it? Um, he's read bits of it, and if he was there, <laughs> um, he does. One of the things that happens when you're, when you're on the radio, um, I don't think it's happened to you because you're so distinguished, um, but one of the things that happens is that um, Mario Rosenstock uh, and people like that imitate you, which the, my kids think is hilarious. Uh, but the funniest um, impersonation of myself that I've ever heard is my son James's party piece, which is Dad reading from his novel Ghost Light in his over-enunciating Southside drawl. And um, so, so, so he, he, he thinks that's really hilarious. So I've added to you know, the gaiety of his life. <laughs> I'm hoping that at some point he might get around to reading Star of the Sea. Uh, which I stayed up many late nights to write for him. Now, there was somebody else, I think, who wanted to come yes. in. Yeah, if you just wait till we get the mic. Thank you. I feel under pressure now to have a good question. Yeah. Um, but actually, you, you mentioned at the beginning that, that kind of Stoker had been with you all your life. Yeah. And I'm wondering, have, uh, and also that he's a, more of a, a shadowy figure than are some of our other novelists or, mm. or writers. So a confused kind of question, but has your feelings or ideas about him changed having written the novel? Do you feel a responsibility now that you maybe are bringing him as a person to a wider audience? Have you got him out of your system? I, I, I never get a character out of my system. I mean, I, I remember all of my fictional characters and I find myself thinking about them. I mean, Molly Allgood, who's, who's kind of central character in Ghostlight. Um, I found myself thinking about it the other day. Who would she vote for in the local elections? <laughs> the Leary rat down, you know? Yeah. Um, and did you come up with an answer? I, I think the Greens. I'm not yes. sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so it's, it's not like that. They never, they, they, they never go away. But certainly my feelings for, for um, Stoker um, over the years have, have gone from um, admiration and curiosity and respect to uh, to love. I mean, I just love Bram Stoker, and uh, it was just a great pleasure to spend time over the last few years with these three characters. And I hope that I have written about him with tenderness and affection, and that my version of him is something like um, the real man. And and if that isn't the case, he will be waiting for me uh, one day with a, with a hammer and a stake and to. <laughs> Get me so so yeah. I, I just admire him so much. I mean, um, it's never easy to be a writer, but the freedoms that writers have now, and the supports that writers have now, and all of that, and, and, and here's this man who just keeps going. It's just remarkable, you know, in the face of disappointment. Uh, and illness and busyness and, uh, and, you know, all of those things, he just kept going with this kind of probably insane belief that one day I will write a book that will be a huge classic. And he did. And it's just that he wasn't around to see it. Um, so so I, I just so admire his, um, his tenacity and his sense of mission and his purpose uh, that, that, he, that he brought to his writing. And um, yeah, I think he was a lovely, gentle unself-promoting, um, interesting, courageous, empathetic, multifaceted man. And uh, I would have liked to, to know him, and I, I kind of feel that I do. He says something lovely in, in, in one of the letters to Ellen Terry. 
um, which I really liked. And he said, last night I had a dream of you-know-who. It was obviously mm. Irving. He was in Act 3 of Hamlet. And somehow you came to me too like a rumour of trees to a tired bird. Yeah. And I thought, I mean, what a wonderful sentence. But yeah. I also thought, I really like that man. Yeah. 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 Well... I'll, I'll, I'll pass on your... <laughs> <laughs> pass on my compliments. Now, have we anybody else there's who a, has a hand up? Yep, there's a hand there. Now, and have we got a mic? Thank you very much. Um, I know you've said a couple of times that writing is very difficult, and I know you've written for theatre as well. Mm. I find the whole aspect of theatre and Ellen Terry really fascinating mm. in the book. And listening to your, the voice of Ellen Terry, you write really well for women. Mm -hmm. Yes. Would you yes. ever consider going back to theatre and writing a piece for female actresses because they're always crying out for good theatre? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I've, I've written um, a couple of plays. Uh, I, I adapted uh, a novel that I love, Daphne du Maurier, as my cousin Rachel uh, for The Gate um, a few years ago. And, and Rachel is a really fascinating character and that production is going on tour in the UK um, later this year so so I'm, I'm very happy that that's coming back to life um and I'd love to write for the theatre again I, I hope I hope that I will do that I mean on, on the issue of writing um about someone who isn't like you in some way another gender another age um I don't set much stock by that at all to me every writer should be able to do that that's your job um and a writer who can't a male writer who can't write about women is a pianist who knows how to play in D. And it's just not everything's written in D, you know, and you better learn C-sharp minor as well. Mm -hmm. So like when I'm, I'm working with, with students at the University of Limerick, where, where I do work now, I, I, I do kind of say that. You, you need to be everything that you are not um, when you're writing. There's a beautiful sentence in Joyce's Ulysses, um, where he says, let me see if I have it, um, every life is in many days. Day after day, we walk through ourselves, meeting ghosts, giants, robbers, old men, young men, widows, wives, brothers in love, but always meeting ourselves. And to me, that's why we have writing. That's why we have fiction. Because all of us contain not only one other self, but multiple other selves. And in the act of reading fiction, we honour that. We escape what it is to be us. It's quite heavy to be us sometimes. We need to put down being us. People call it escapism, but I, I don't care what they call it. I don't care if it's Maeve Binchy or John Banville. There is something in us that yearns to know and to have that experience of empathy, to look at the world through the eyes of another person. And the odd, the beautiful paradox of fiction is that when that is done well, we return to ourselves with a kind of enhanced and deepened notion of what it's like to be us. So, so that, that's what the project is. So, so you need to be able to write as, as, a, as a man and a woman, as a child, as a French person, as somebody in the future, as somebody in prehistory. That's just learning your craft and learning all of the keys and all of the chords. And that's just when, when, when the music starts you know that's the bottom line to me and there, there shouldn't be any praise for that it's what you do with that um, that counts and that's very similar to acting too because you have to be able to 
imagine outside of your own experience. Well, th 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 and if you can't do that as an actor, you're very one-dimensional. Yes, but it's also that, that, I mean, Ellen and Bram and Henry Irving talk about this in the book. One of the ways that actors done that, and I've been around actors a bit, is, is that they kind of believe that the other person is in them. And, and, and somehow it is. You know, Ellen Terry was able to play Lady Macbeth by finding something in her. So that's what I'm saying. And there's nothing kind of mystical about it. You see this with young kids all of the time. You know, they can be a dog or an elf or a tree or whatever it is. But, and, and something of that persists in us, which is why we have storytelling at all. So if you're going to be a storyteller, you know, you, you, need, you need to be good at all of those things um, just to get into the starting gate, as far as I'm concerned. I had my brother who was younger than me, and some days he was Paddy O'Leary from Boris, which is where we lived, but other days he was Paddy O'Leary from Carlo. And you needed to know which one he was, because if you called him and you didn't call him the right way, he'd say, well, I didn't hear you because I'm Paddy O'Leary from Carlo. And it was very handy, you know, to move in and out of those, those spaces, and he had no problem with it. Yeah. yeah. Joe, just because we're coming to the end, um, the first thing I wanted to ask you was, can you teach people how to write? I mean, you run creative writing courses. Um, and there's always a big argument, really, as to whether writers are born or whether they can be trained or, or taught how to write. Um, it might sound odd for um, a professor of creative writing to say that you can't teach people how to write. <laughs> but um, let, let me say, what we, what we cannot teach people to do um, is to be talented. We, we, we can't teach you to have a talent. I mean, I, meant, I mentioned piano playing there. You know, I had four years of piano lessons as a kid from a poor, unfortunate nun who I hope is in heaven now um, and is being rewarded for the horror of having to teach me piano. And if I'd had 40 years of piano lessons, I couldn't play the piano. You know, I had a, about six months of tennis lessons. It's the same, you know. As you can, I don't have many talents, so it's just as well I have writing. So, so we, can't, we can't teach people to, to, to do that. And I, I suppose the other thing is we can't teach people to have a work ethic. Yeah. Being, being a writer is really hard work. I, I mean, it's not coal mining, but it's hard work and it requires commitment. And I say to the students, what's required to be serious about your writing is, is marriage. This isn't falling in love. It isn't the dizzy, kind of wonderful, wacky, romantic, sexy feeling of, of, of being young and being smitten by somebody. Being a writer is, <clears throat> for better or worse, and for richer or poorer, <laughs> and there are days when you have a little argument with writing, and writing might say, you're, you and I shouldn't be together at all. <laughs> or you might say to writing, you know what, you're fucking right, you know, and all of, those, all, all of those things, but you need to be in it for the long haul, the way Bram was. And that isn't for everybody, and why would it be? You know, yeah. There are just so many other fantastic things you can do with your life. But if you, if you, if you have a talent... And if you're willing to work, of course there are things that can be learned. We wouldn't say to any young kid who is a brilliant or promising uh, dancer or a violinist that she shouldn't study her craft. So, so if, 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 if you have that and if you have the desire uh, and if you, if you, if you are willing to, to honour that gift and to do what needs to be done, then at the University of Limerick, 
Yes. And now it's like the ad part of the. Yeah. If you have that, just dial this number. It's appearing at the bottom of the screen, and Donald Ryan and I will help you. So yeah. A last question, and probably reflects the age I am. I was very conscious in this book that there are some wonderful passages about about sometimes the humiliation of getting old, and sometimes what you what you learn as you get older, and even the beautiful Ellen Terry ends up not being recognised because she wears spectacles. Um, and I was just conscious, you know, is it the case that writers inevitably reflect some of their own life concerns and the stage of life that they're at in the novels that they write? And is there in you, and am I catching it in that book, a sense of, of getting older and the challenges that that brings? Um. I, I have a son at home doing the leaving search this year, and at the start of the year I felt uh, like I was still 21. Um, and having spent a year in the company of a teenager doing the leaving search, I now feel I'm about 207. <laughs> um, so I'm ageing to that um, extent. But um, no, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think as I said to the friend here, you, sh you should be able to... Write, writing is an act of empathy, you should know what it's like to be old when, if you're a 25-year-old writer, or you should have a, you know, a good try at imagining it. I suppose what you do have to add to that <clears throat> as you begin to get older yourself is a store of and a stock of experiences that you, that you didn't have. And, you know, things that have changed in your life. Um, you might have learnt more things. I mean, the coda of this book um, which is all set on one day in 1912. The characters are older. But to me, they're far more beautiful. They're far more easy to be around. They have far more clarity. I, I think Bram is really at home in his skin for the first time in his life when, when he's an, an old uh, man. And he's, he's kind of come to an agreement with his life um, in a way that sometimes um, the older people that I've known... Um, have. Like years ago when I was a student in UCD, I, I wrote a thesis about a poet called Charles Donnelly, who, who fought and died in the Spanish Civil War. So, this, so I wrote this thesis in the middle of the 1980s. And there was a wonderful old man, I think he was in his 80s then, called George Gilmore, who had known Charles Donnelly. Yes. And he had been in the old IRA, he'd fought in the Spanish Civil War, he'd survived plane crashes. He, he had had this extraordinary life. He lived by himself in a cottage in Hoth that I, I may be making this up, but in my memory um, it didn't have um, electricity. And once a week over the two years that I was writing this thesis, George would walk into town to meet me and we would have lunch together and he would tell me what he had remembered that week about Charles Donnelly. And on his way home he would say, now if I'm here next week, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll meet again and hopefully that'll be okay and I'll see you at, at two o'clock next Thursday. But of course I'm 86 so I might not be. And at that time, like I was 21, I thought how could you feel so at home mm. about your mortality? But, yeah. but it, it was kind of very touching and very beautiful. So there might be some of that um, feeding into In this book. book. Yeah. Yeah. That there's, yeah. a, there's a clarity that comes with... Um, getting older. He was a lovely, he was a lovely man, an yes, absolute he was. gentleman. Yeah, he yeah, was, really he was. wonderful. Joe, it's, it's nice to be talking about him. It is. 
Joe is going to sign copies of his book in the Gutter Bookshop, which I gather you can make your way to from, from here. So I'd just like to thank you very much, well, Joe, for all that Well, I would like to thank you, wisdom. Olivia, for being here. And, um, <laughs> <laughs>